I'm very happy now to welcome to the Radio Cafe Ken Stanley. He's a computer scientist, he's an artificial intelligence researcher, an associate professor at the University of Central Florida, and he's co-author with Joel Lehman of the new book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thank you very much, Mary Charlotte. I'm really happy to be here. It's really been such a pleasure and so interesting reading your book. And the book is about the fact that we live in this world which is very much focused on goals and objective and measurable results from everything to quarterly profits to rock-hard flat abs to test scores to finding true love. We assign goals and measurable results to all those kinds of things. You're making the case that measurable objectives are actually more of an obstacle than a help in many cases, and that a lot of the most important discoveries in human civilization have been made when people weren't really looking, when they didn't have the goal, or certainly not the goal to discover that thing. What are some examples of that? Yeah, that's right. And it is, I think, really important to go through a few examples because the broader point that we use goals to basically guide all our endeavors is really a big problem for us if it actually isn't the way that great things get done. So just a couple examples. I mean, there's a lot of examples of serendipitous discovery, and people are familiar with that idea. And you know, one of the classic examples is like Percy Spencer, who had a candy bar in his pocket that basically melted when he was walking by some radar machinery, and that gave him the idea for a microwave. So he wasn't trying to make a microwave or a microwave oven, but he did just kind of run into it serendipitously through his other work. But we can see this kind of phenomenon in many spheres. Like, for example, the invention of rock and roll was not intentional. You know, and there's examples, there's a lot of text written about, say, Elvis and how he was just playing around. Um, I love, I mean, there's a quote in your book that I'd like to read about Elvis, if I may. A guitarist who played with Elvis looked back on that sort of fertile moment and said, all of a sudden, Elvis just started singing this song, jumping around and acting the fool. And then Bill picked up his bass, and he started acting the fool, too, and I started playing with them. And then the recording engineer stuck his head out and said, what are you doing? And we said, we don't know. Right. Yeah, and I think that the point there is that nobody had the objective of inventing rock and roll. And that's why it was invented. You know, and how many things actually worked like that in our history? You know, and actually, I think it's an important point that this isn't only about obvious serendipity, like those are very serendipitous cases, but there's more subtle serendipity that's behind almost every invention. So, for example, like the computer. The computer seems like you might think that somebody tried to build a computer and then they did, so it was an objective, and then, you know, that's how it happened. But actually, the pieces that went into the computer were built by people who were not trying to build computers. And this, I think, is a really important factor behind almost every invention that's ever been made. So, for example, in, com in the history of computation, the first computers were made out of vacuum tubes. But the people who built vacuum tubes, who invented vacuum tubes and developed them, were not thinking of computation at all. They were doing electrical experiments. So that particular component, which was essential to eventually building a computer, would not have been built if the goal had been to build a computer, which is a paradox. And that's why we need to be worried if we're always measuring progress towards a specific objective, because those particular kind of offshoots or digressions that eventually lead to these great discoveries would never actually get done. One of the things that's really important in so many of these examples 
is that the people who are making these discoveries, whether it's rock and roll, whether it's the computer, whether it's the microwave oven, they're really immersed in their field and they're really paying attention. Yeah, that's another very important point, you know, because a lot of the time when we hear stories about serendipity, we kind of think of it as an accident or like someone could just be kind of doing something crazy, running around randomly, and then they sort of bump into an idea by accident. But if you really look at the history, it's usually people who are prepared for these kinds of accidents. You know, they're usually well-educated or experienced or have some talent. In fact, there's an interesting page if you're interested in serendipity on Wikipedia, just under the word serendipity. And if you look at the examples there, there's a lot of them. And almost everybody who's had these kind of discoveries is somebody who had a really good track record, you know, which is suspicious if you really think it's an accident. So part of the message of the book is that the ability to have this kind of serendipitous discovery is not really an accident. It's something that we can prepare for, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get more into that. And that that's actually an important factor in a lot of discovery that happens you know, throughout our culture, but something that is not encouraged when we're explicitly following objectives. It seems that artists and musicians and people who are in overtly creative fields intuitively understand this. Yeah, absolutely. And I had some experience with that when I visited the Rhode Island School of Design a few years ago, and I actually gave a talk there on this subject. And it was just an amazing experience to me. It's actually part of what led me to be motivated with my co-author, Joel Lehman, to write this book. Because what I found was that when I talked about how pervasive objectives are in our culture and how much of a problem that is and how many great things happen without or despite objectives, it seemed almost to have like a palpable emotional resonance with the audience. It wasn't just like we're talking about facts. It was almost like some kind of therapy where they finally heard a kind of release or catharsis for like the way that they had been feeling for so long when you know everything around them is you know drilling into them. What is your objective? What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you building this very strange thing or painting this strange, pointless thing? There was one guy in particular that really stuck with me, his story. He visited me after the talk, and he wanted to tell me about something that he did that he always felt that it was very hard for him to justify or explain to people. They always wanted to know, why are you doing this? And what it was was that he would basically take an axe to some metal, so just perform some violence on it, and then throw it in the ocean and then stick it on the beach overnight to rust. And that's basically his art, and that's what he does. And he's an expert on that. And so, you know, he doesn't know why he wants to do that. But, you know, this kind of idea, I think, of violence and then mellowing and then sort of encapsulating that or crystallizing that in some kind of piece of art, maybe it has, you know, its own beauty that can lead to other things without knowing where it's necessarily going. I mean, it may resonate with you. It may lead to other artistic ideas. But for him, it was basically a release to know that he doesn't have to explain that. It's interesting to me that, I mean, artists understand this. There's also a lot of resonance with spiritual ideas like some Buddhist or Zen points of view that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey and things like that, and about being fully present in the moment. You guys are hardcore computer scientists. How did you come across these ideas in your work? Yeah, so this is an interesting story. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're probably wondering, why is a computer scientist talking about this Zen stuff? Um, and I am basically a hardcore computer scientist by trade. But 
it's something that we stumbled into. So it's almost like the story behind this book and the idea behind this book itself is basically an example of the principle in the book, which is serendipity. We were running an experiment in our lab, which was really supposed to reveal some facts about artificial intelligence. And this experiment ended up actually exposing this principle, which I would call like the objective paradox. When you say the objective paradox, you mean, if I, if I understand it correctly, the paradox that the more you look for something, the less you find it, the less you look for something, the more ripe you are to find things. Yes, thank you for the clarification. That's what I mean by the objective paradox. It's that trying to achieve something can actually stop you from achieving anything, which is very paradoxical and counterintuitive. Uh, and that's really what the book is about. So you were doing some kind of artificial intelligence experiment in your lab that led you to come across what you call the objective paradox. What were you doing? Right. So what we were doing, and, you know, at first this will sound completely unrelated, so just you got to bear with me, is basically we were making a website where people could come in from the Internet and breed pictures. Um, and I know that probably the audience doesn't know what that means exactly. How do you breed a picture? Like a Van Gogh doesn't mate with a Picasso or something like that. Um, but we created a technology, and this is sort of where the AI comes in, where you can actually cause a picture to have offspring. And just like if you were breeding horses or dogs or something like that, in this pick breeder website, you can actually ask a picture to have babies. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's on the web at pickbreeder.org. And I myself, while I was reading this book, took about 50 breaks to breed pictures. And it was a very interesting process. But go ahead. Right. So, yeah, you can visit it now. It's still around. Uh, it's been around for about seven years, um, and there's about 10,000 images that have been bred. But so what happens on this site is basically there's different ways of starting, but let me just give an example of how you might start. Like one way you might start is, is what's called from scratch. And what will happen is the, the website will put on your screen a bunch of basically random blobs. Those are the pictures that you have a choice of breeding. And then you choose the, the one that you like the best, just like you might choose the fastest horse or something like that if you were breeding horses. So here you choose the best picture in your view. It's up to you what you think is the best. And then you can say make offspring. And, and that picture will then create a whole new generation of pictures which are related to it but not exactly the same, just as your children you know, look a bit like you but aren't exactly like you. And as you can imagine, this is just sort of intuitively like breeding. If you keep doing that over and over, you keep picking your favorite picture, and then you get a new generation, and then you pick your favorite from that, and so forth and so on. What you're really doing is you're evolving an image, or evolving art, you could say. And over time, maybe it goes in a direction that somehow reflects your personality or your preferences or something like that. I have to say, I did this and I kept breeding dogs. Yeah. which is my favorite animal, is very strange because I didn't do that on purpose. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, and a lot of people have an experience like that where it's almost like they learn something about themselves, you know, because it kind of, something comes out and you say, well, how did that happen? And it really it's probably, it's because basically that's kind of stuff you like at some level. Maybe it's subconscious even. So there's one other actually point about pick breeder that's important to try to understand what's going on there. So you, you can sort of see that there's all these people coming in and breeding pictures. But there's a way that we set it up intentionally to let people really build on each other's discoveries. And this is one of the really interesting things about the site is that you can actually publish your discovery. Like, in other words, something that you bred that you thought was cool. You could put it on the site so that others who come in later then could breed from it. 
And so you can start with something that someone else actually discovered. So that means there's all this branching going on. We call it branching where, you know, I discover a butterfly and then you take it and you evolve it into a bat or something like that. Um, so here's the interesting part. This is where this connects in. We started to notice a phenomenon, and it was a really surprising phenomenon, which was that we discovered that when people evolved really interesting stuff, which they often did, I mean, we have cars, we have butterflies, we have a skull, we have just amazing things. You wouldn't believe that these things were evolved from blobs. You might think that actually if you saw it and you came in, like you see this skull, it looks like a bona fide skull, you might think, oh, well, somebody must have wanted to evolve a skull, and then they just bred towards the skull as an objective. And this is where objectives come into it. This is what we discovered is that actually all of those interesting things were discovered only when they were not the objective of the person who discovered them. And this was just like mind-blowing. It's totally not what I was expecting. I actually ran into it because when I first realized this principle it was from my own use of the site. Actually, I evolved the car. And the story is actually I started from an alien face. Someone else had evolved an alien face. And I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to take this alien face and make more alien faces, and it'll be like a cool alien face collection. But what happened was that the eyes of the alien face started to descend over the process of breeding. They got lower and lower on the face. And I just suddenly realized there was a moment of serendipity where I realized, oh my God, this is becoming a car. The eyes had become wheels. And that's when I realized I could get to a car. And that moment was like a big epiphany in my whole life because it went against everything I've ever been taught about how you achieve things. You know, my understanding of achievement, and this is also something that's drilled into you in computer science and machine learning, is that you set a goal and you measure your progress towards your goal and you make progress by getting closer to the goal. But here I was, I basically found one of the most amazing images on the site, which is this car, and I had explicitly not been trying to evolve a car. And in fact, if I had been trying to evolve a car, I would not have, have succeeded. Which you actually tried. I mean, you went back and tried to evolve certain images and couldn't do it. Yes, we did. I mean, after we sort of noticed this principle, just to kind of drive it home, we actually set up a special computer program to choose things intentionally that looked more and more like some objective, like, say, a butterfly or a car. And it, we found that, yes, it, it fails miserably when it's set as an objective. These things can only be discovered when they are not the objective. And I think it's just important to, to clarify just one point of why that is, just in the kind of example of the car. You know, why is it that I could not evolve a car if I had been trying to? And one of the reasons is that I would not have started with that alien face, because it's not a car. Now, the only way I could start with the alien is if I'm not thinking about cars, which shows you just how dangerous it is to constantly be constrained by your objective. Very, very interesting. So this, it turns out, I mean, somebody might be listening and saying, so what, you have evolved an alien face on a little graphic site from <laughs> yeah. a, you know, evolved a car from an alien face. Okay, right. that's great. But it turns out that this is a metaphor for some much larger processes that are happening in the world, not only the artistic process, but as we've been talking about the scientific process and so many other things. And it seems that these stepping stones, whether it be in a picture breeder or anything else, are a real metaphor for the process of discovery. Yeah, that's right. I think it's really important to view that story as a really deep metaphor for just discovery in general. 
you know, I, I might have been evolving pictures, but, you know, I could have been trying to invent something. And in that case, the stepping stone would have been an invention that someone else had come up with before. And I maybe started from that. Um, you're always starting from the stepping stones that have been laid by your predecessors. And in some sense, where we can get is very much constrained by where we've been. You know, so if there are inventions that exist in the world or discoveries, like the alien face in that example, then that actually is creating potential for new discoveries. But the thing that we just don't know is where those stepping stones may lead. And this is kind of the, the deep revelation that was behind this. It's very, it is strange that, like, you know, you'd come to some really broad social commentary from trying to evolve pictures on a website. But you can imagine this was a process that sort of unfolded over years, realizing that the implications of this insight were, like, much, much broader and broader and broader. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized that this applies to almost everything, this idea of stepping stones. There are so many examples of stepping stones from the history of technology, from the history of science, even from, I mean, contemporary internet stuff. In your book, you talk about how YouTube started as a dating site, and then one thing led to another, and it became this incredible video sharing platform that it is now. Once you got this concept of stepping stones, where did you go with that as a computer scientist? Yeah, so it's sort of natural for us as computer scientists, once we see a concept like this, to try to somehow formalize it and make it something that you can actually run in a computer. And I know it sounds a little weird because we're talking about life now, but if you think about it, Discovery can be thought of almost like a program, like something that tries to search out through the possibilities and find the interesting things. And, you know, I'm in artificial intelligence, so it's kind of what we try to do, actually, is to actually make programs that discover and solve problems, discover things and solve problems. So we actually tried to formalize this idea of stepping stone collection. So basically, what is what I mean is that what what PicBreeder shows, or what all of these examples show from our culture, is that it's really important to have all these stepping stones sort of available so that other people can pick up on them and then go forward in all kinds of directions, not necessarily in a particular objective direction, but in any direction. And so I call that like a stepping stone collector, a system that collects possible jumping off points that can lead to somewhere new. Another way I sometimes call it is a treasure hunter. It's like you're trying to find cool stuff, but not anything in particular, just all the treasures that are out there. And so we wanted to kind of program like one of these treasure hunting systems, something that just accumulates interesting things and then gets more interesting things from those. So we created an algorithm or basically a computer program called Novelty Search that does this automatically. So there's no humans involved anymore and basically embodies this principle. So basically what it does is as an example, it, it basically can work with a robot, so just to make this concrete. Like, we could say that this robot is going to try to do something, and we're going to to facilitate that kind of discovery. What we're going to do is we're going to collect novel behaviors from the robot. So normally, in the field of machine learning, you'd be trying to improve the robot's behavior with respect to some objective. But our algorithm, this novelty search algorithm, doesn't care about improving with respect to an objective. All it cares about is collecting new behaviors. And then what it does is it looks at those new behaviors, and then it tweaks them a bit to see if it can get even more new behaviors. So it's basically an embodiment of a stepping stone collector. And what we found was that we were able, with this very strange counterintuitive method of basically collecting new behaviors without any goal in mind, to actually achieve behaviors that solve problems or achieve objectives better than a program that's actually trying to achieve them. So there's this example 
of like a simple maze that you want the robot to be able to get out the other side. And if you try to program the robot to get through the other side of the maze, your success rate was, I think it was three times out of 40, something like that. Right. And if you program the robot to just do new things, so it crash into a wall, well, then the next time it crashes into a different wall, and the next time it crashes into a third wall, the next time it falls down, it'll keep doing that. It won't crash into the same wall twice because that's not new. It'll keep doing new things. It got out of the maze 39 times out of 40. Right. So that makes the example concrete. So this is one of the classic experiments, um, and there's been many experiments with novel research since then. But in this experiment, yeah, there's this idea that crashing into a wall, like normally in, if we were trying to train a robot, that would be seen as a bad thing. You think, well, that's not at all going towards our objective. But in this paradigm, suddenly crashing into a wall is a good thing as long as it's a new wall, as long as it's a new kind of a crash. And that makes me think a lot about child development and education. Because when you see little kids running around in preschool or kindergarten or on the playground or whatever, they're not, they don't have the objective to become a good athlete or a good student. They're playing and in so doing are becoming good athletes and good students. Yeah, I mean, this, this really raises a lot of questions about how we think about how we train people or teach people or let people teach themselves. I mean, just think about the idea that it was very important on the road to finding a robot that actually could solve the maze to have robots that crash into walls. Like, what does that say about children who are making mistakes and that we're trying to correct or prevent from making those mistakes because those are not serving their objective? I mean, we, it, it really implies we have to facilitate creative or playful discovery as sort of part of a normal development process. And that seems intrinsic in childhood. I mean, children just naturally seem to have this instinct. And they also don't really do that well when they're continually pressured with objectives. Yeah, I mean, we, we all have a kind of intuition about that, you know, that, that the objective becomes like a straitjacket around people's growth and development. But when we put it into practice, we really don't follow this intuition. I mean, we completely constrain the education system with objectives and metrics and everybody has to be moving towards targets. This is how we're running our society. So, you know, what are we losing because of that? Now, let's say you have that feeling like, I don't know why I want to do this, but I really want to do it. What is that? Yeah, so I, the way I say it is, I think humans have a nose for the interesting. Like We kind of know that if I take this path, it just smells interesting. I can't really tell you where it's going. It's intuition. And we don't respect that very much. You know, we're very afraid of risk in our culture, and that's why the word accountability has become so popular. But when we feel like something might be the right way to go, sometimes it's not, but sometimes it is. I mean, this is a matter of risk. But the very best people, the most talented people, are very good at actually making that kind of determination, even though they can't justify it objectively. So we are ultimately hampering those people from doing great things by kind of constraining them with this objective straitjacket and saying, well, you better tell me or prove that this is actually going in the right direction before I help you or give you money or let you do what you want to do. Which speaks to things like, I mean, there are so many parents who are saying to their children, how are you going to make a living by doing that, by studying art? And sometimes that kid has a really deep intuition that that's what they need to do. And even if they don't end up being an artist, that becomes a stepping stone for them to do something else. There's a question that really arises from what you're talking about, which is, 
okay, we have a society, and you're very deep in it, the world of science, in which, I mean, people give out jobs and money, and they have their quarterly reports in which they want to see profits and all this. We live in a world that's governed by objectives and metrics. How should we do it differently? Yeah, so, I mean, this is something I've become really worried about since having this insight about the objective paradox, is that we really do run our society based on objectives. I mean, like in science, for example, which you mentioned, we only fund grants, for example, scientific grants for for people to pursue their scientific ideas if there's a clear objective and if some panel, for example, thinks that that objective is achievable. And if you think in terms of what I've said so far, I mean, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, it's pruning out all the stepping stones. And so that raises this question, though, and this is the natural next question, the question you asked, which is, so So, what is the, the right way that we should behave? You know, you might think that what I'm saying sounds like it's just this kind of amorphous, like, we'll just do whatever you want and everything great will happen. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, and this is, I think, a really key point for this whole discussion, is that there is a principled way to make this kind of process happen, this kind of treasure hunting process. We've seen it in pick breeder. We see it in biological evolution. We even see it in human innovation as a whole, which is that systems that are designed to proliferate and share stepping stones, or these treasure hunting systems, are the ones that lead to the greatest discoveries. And so when we talk about society and how society should try to facilitate these kinds of things, we need to create our systems in such a way that they facilitate collecting stepping stones. So do you have any examples of how that might work on the ground? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the examples that I discuss, and I guess it gets into political territory, but it's still just interesting to think about, because I'm really talking about it not from a political perspective, but from this sort of objective, theoretic, optimization theoretic perspective, is like the education system. I mean, that is so saturated with objectives. So like, for example, like we all know everybody to score really high on tests. And this has caused a lot of controversy recently with these kind of standardized testing that's just basically saturating the school system. And so we actually rate schools on sort of how well students are doing on average. And this is very objective based because we have an objective, which is for everybody in the school to do really great. And so people would say, well, but what else can we do? We need accountability. This is the only way that we can get things to improve. But there is a non-objective alternative, and this is just one example of, I'm not saying this is the solution to everything, but just to give an example that we could think differently. We could arrange this system instead as a stepping stone collector. So we could still have accountability in the sense that people could be judged for how they're doing, But instead of having all these standardized tests, like teachers could, for example, create a portfolio that they share with other teachers who then rate their peers or something like that, or write a report saying, how well is this person doing at the end of the year? And what that would do is it would cause ideas to proliferate through the system. You know, one teacher might have an interesting idea, which means she's taking a risk, for example. But if other teachers were exposed to that idea and then could decide for themselves whether that's interesting or not. And still there's some accountability because they get to send back some feedback. But overall, what would happen is through this giant social network, these ideas would be proliferating and people would be able to build on each other's ideas. The current system is the exact opposite of that. Basically, it says you can't take any risks or try anything and anything you do will be basically snuffed out because there's a risk that it might actually lower your objective test score. So all of these interesting, creative, possible stepping stones will never actually be tried or shared or realized at all. There are systems where teachers are encouraged to do that and where teachers are actually 
trained like professionals, treated like professionals, even paid like professionals. Finland is an example, and you talk about that example in your book, where they really get to share ideas and make spaces for the kids in which testing is not what it's about. It's really about learning, not only teachers learning from each other, but kids and teachers learning together and sharing and opening up that space of creativity, which paradoxically makes for much higher test scores than going for high test scores. Yeah, I mean, that that could be viewed as an example of evidence in support of my claim here. I mean, Finland, um, where they are much more in the spirit of, of the kind of idea I just described, and, and they get higher test scores. I mean, there's a lot, I've read counter-arguments to this, sort of Finland's special in lots of ways and so forth. But still, you should at least be concerned, I think, when you see that, and you realize that our system is so opposite to that. I mean, we tend to view this kind of following your instincts as a bad thing in our country, in our culture. And in some way, that's like denying all of the investment that we put into people. I mean, why did we invest all this time educating these teachers if at the end of the day, we don't trust them to have any ideas whatsoever? I mean, all that matters to us is the test score. So basically, we're saying we don't trust you, so you better not try anything that's not part of the way the book is written right now, or else, you know, the test score might go down. And so, in effect, we're denying the expertise that we've created. It's an opportunity to flourish and realize its potential. Ken Stanley is a computer scientist, an artificial intelligence researcher. He's an associate professor at the University of Central Florida. He's co-author of the new book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. Thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Thank you. This was a really great opportunity, and I very much appreciate it. And by the way, people can go to pickbreeder.org if they want to have fun with that terrific site.